Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Josh Simon, for becoming a patron of the original cast. Josh has his own Patreon for his podcast, The Gag, which coincidentally, you will be able to hear me on talking about Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. But in the meantime, what you should do is go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and become a patron of the original cast, just like Josh did. And what does that get you? Well, many, many things, aside from the overwhelming fountain of enthusiasm that will flow up from within yourself for supporting a podcast as wonderful as this. You also get access to our patrons-only podcast, The Original Cast of the Movies. And 2021 is the year to join, kids, because 2021 is when we're doing all the films of Stephen Sondheim. We're not doing all the films of Stephen Sondheim. I should say we're doing 12 films related to slash starring slash written by slash adaptations of the work of Stephen Sondheim. But still, it's all Sondheim. 12 Sondheim films. The first one's up now. We did six by Sondheim with uh, Tara and Stefania from the Off to Broadway podcast. We're doing West Side Story. We're doing Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. We're doing Evening Primrose. Haven't you always wanted to listen to me talk about Evening Primrose with two people? You know you have. It's it's what's been missing from your life. And if you go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod, you can get it, and you can listen to it the day it comes out. Monthly podcast, bonus podcast, long podcast, talking about movies, musical movies, and this year, it's all Stephen Sondheim. Patreon.com slash OriginalCastPod. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is the Judaica Digital Humanities Coordinator at Penn's Library, at Penn Libraries, uh, but she's also very interested in digital public humanities and a big music theater fan. It's Emily Esten, everybody. Thank you so much for that introduction. Oh, of course. Well, it's all, it's all right from your website, so... It, yeah, it's-, <laughs> it's so exciting to hear it said in your voice. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you feel that way. That's really nice. Thank you so much for doing this, Emily. Thank you. This is like dream come true. Oh, good. I'm glad you feel that way. And you're here to talk about... Newsy! From Bottle Alley to the harbor, there's easy pickings guaranteed. Try any bank of bum or barber, they almost all knows how to read. It's a crooked game we're playing, one we'll never lose. Long as suckers don't mind paying, just to get bad news. Ain't it a fine life, carrying the matter through it all? A mighty fine life, carrying the matter tough and tall. When that bell rings, we go swimming. Newsies! Yes, you're here to talk about Newsies. How did Newsies come into your life? Yeah, so my my great aunt is probably the only person in my family who has the same uh, excitement for musical theater as I do. Um, so her family had really loved the 1992 movie. Mm. So we received, the, my family received the 1992 movie as kids. I remember watching it and not being super interested in the music, but uh, I was a big history buff. So very interested in uh, urban history, what's happening in New York, Theodore Roosevelt. So uh, flash forward to 2012, I remember seeing it at the Tonys. She went to go see it on Broadway, said it was not as good as the movie. Mm. Um, And then when it went on tour, my sister, who's four years younger, I was like, we have to go see this. I want to go see this musical. We're going together. And it ended up being the show that we bonded over. And now I have another Uh. musical theater fan. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I ended up, I rewatched the movie in preparation for this to remember like what the differences were. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie is fine. I think the musical is a very good musical. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We did the movie on uh, on the original cast of the movies. Oh, gosh. A, a while ago. Um, and I, I and uh, Tia, Tia Shearer and James Finley and Tia and I had nostalgic 
feelings for the movie and James did not. And it was very interesting to see like his sort of, nah, this is fine, you know, sort of general reaction to it. Uh, I, I tend to think it's kind of a silly movie in a lot of ways, actually, um, if viewed objectively. But I'm not sure if the musical, that's interesting to see which, so but uh, as a historian, as someone who's very interested in history, how does this, well, and I'll combine this with the, the regular opening question uh, of saying, like, could you summarize the plot? But also, if you could, if you, what, what sort of Newsies historical knowledge you have, I'd love to hear some about that as well. Yeah, so the summary of the plot is, it is 1899 in New York City, specifically Lower Manhattan. We're following uh, Jack Kelly, who is the de facto leader of the Newsboys and, you know, his ragtag team of other teenagers. Um and they decide to form an informal union and go on strike after the raise in prices of um, their purchasing of the paper from mm -hmm. Pulitzer. Um, and we start to see the newsboy side, we see the Pulitzer and publishing side, and we also follow this through a roving young reporter named Catherine. And then, and that does, but it, it is based at least on an actual historical event. It is. So it is based on the actual 1899 uh, news strike. It is similar in that, um, you know, in the musical, they reference the war has happened. Mm -hmm. um, so the war was still happening at that point. Mm -hmm. um, it was part of the reason for the price increase. Um, the newsies were somewhat successful. There was not a price decrease, but... Uh, the papers were bought back. Um, I mean, some of the other interesting things to me is like the recognition of the child labor that's happening. Also thinking about how important Brooklyn is. Like at this point, Brooklyn is just becoming part of New York City. Mm -hmm. So not only is it the only other big area in the, in only other big city in the area, it is also like now these two places are actually considered part of each other. And so mm. that backlash, um, yeah, those are the major things I think they're really interesting. And then, you know, pointing at uh, U.S. politics, right? Horace Greeley is mentioned a couple times going mm -hmm. west. Um, you have Theodore Roosevelt, who at this point is governor. Um, you have characters like Pulitzer, who we sort of know of big New York, uh, New York and publishing tycoons, but kind of that figure at that particular time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of, the, but they do definitely, I think the musical the stage show takes a lot more liberties with with history than the the movie certainly takes some liberties don't get me wrong but uh in far as giving because the reporter is pulitzer's daughter correct yes okay and that wasn't a thing um uh, yeah so he did have a daughter <laughs> yes. um, who was named Catherine, who died right, right. um female reporters were a thing at the time mm -hmm. um and but so, his like, daughter was not. But yeah, no, reporter, his daughter yeah. was not. That is totally. Not that is not. Yeah, it is an interesting addition that the the musical makes in in sort of tying that because in the movie the 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 romantic interest being the sister of the two other the young boy and and his brother Davy right that's one of them. Yep. There we go. Davy and Les. Davy and Les, and uh, and she's in like two and a half scenes in the movie it's a super weak love yeah, story they go from like we're just meeting to yes we're in a relationship right it's like the only girl he's ever met that's sort of how it feels in the movie exactly <laughs> it's the first time he ever met a girl and so he's like oh that's this is nice uh except he knows Anne margaret in the movie so i guess that's not true but he so I I appreciated that a lot in the writing of having the reporter and him be in this very stereotypical musical comedy relationship where he flirts with her, she thinks he's terrible, and then they just swing all the way around because, of course, they're going to. But one of the biggest additions, and the one that when I've never seen the stage show, my my wife and and my son have seen it at least twice. Uh, one of those two times was, um, at least was the the filmed, recorded version of the stage show that was in that was in movie theaters a couple of years ago, and they she was really taken aback by the movement of Santa Fe, all the way to the top of the show, as being Jack's big, I want song. Planting crops, splitting rails, swapping tails around the fire. 
Except for Sunday when you lie around all day Soon your friends are more like family And they's begging you to stay Ain't that neat? Living sweet in Santa Fe Which makes sense, you know, from a from a sort of structural standpoint, but it is kind of, you know, for people who love the movie, it's it's, it's and we talked. I actually talked about this a little bit with um, Chris Catelli when he was on the show. How there was a sort of it seems an, an uh, idea to tear the whole thing apart and start over again. And he and a couple other people were the bastions. Like, no, no, there's parts of this that were really good. We should hold on to it. So, what did you find were some things that are on the stage show that that are improved in the movie improve on the movie. I, I actually think the movement of santa fe to the beginning is an improvement mm-hmm. um in the sense that if you try to put it roughly where it would appear in the stage musical it it would be slowing down the plot a lot yeah 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 and it's it's a good way to sort of make it, it making it not only jack's song but jack and crutchy's song really mm-hmm. establishes their relationship um and gives us this interest and connection early on to Jack that I feel like we would only get, oh yes, these newsies love him. We don't really get why. So I think mm-hmm. it makes him lovable. Um, I think the addition of Catherine is really great for the reasons you said, um, but also it sort of helps put what's happening again in perspective. Like it makes it, this is a new century. This is what's happening with the kids. This is what we're doing moving forward. And she's always tying it back to that idea. Um, and for me growing up, I was a big fan of female investigative performers at the turn of the century, like Nellie Bly. Oh, sure. Um, who Kara Lindsay based her performance on. Okay. So I always found that really well done. Um, I think the for the purposes of a stage show, the aging up of the Newsies is really important. And I'm super curious mm. when that came into decision making. Um, Because when I rewatched the movie, I was like, these kids are young. They are kids. (laughs) Yes, they absolutely are. And in the stage musical, they're they're talking about themselves as kids. But I mean, Jeremy Jordan is 30. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They're in their 20s and 30s. Well, well, that's practicality. I mean, you can't have kids in the show on Broadway. Uh, And you couldn't do that kind of choreography and like. Certainly not. No, yeah. and yes, obviously Chris won his his Tony for this, and and I think justifiably so. Um, it also, yeah. of course, won Alan Menken his Tony in the American Theater Wings. Continued, it's you know what what scores are eligible for Tony Awards? I don't know. Alan Menken, sure. Other people, maybe not. Who knows? I went back to read the Broadway World forums about this. They were trying to figure out, oh, is Newsies going to be eligible? And then they're like, well, did Newsies add any new music? Or like, is it 50% of the score? And going through all of that, which I think, yeah, they did add new music, did. but it's did. winning for the old music. It is. And it's, well, it's also winning for Alan Menken, who had never exactly. won a Tony. I don't know that he had ever been nominated for a Tony, actually, he said. Um, because his major theater success was off Broadway. And of course, when Little Shop moved to Broadway, it was ineligible. I, I get really in a, I've done it on the show. I'm sure you've heard it. I get in a tizzy about these sort of like ridiculous rules they establish for what's eligible and what's not that they seem to be willing to bend anytime it suits giving somebody like Alan Menken a Tony. Not that Alan Menken shouldn't have a Tony, but you know, it, it, it's it's a it, if you're going to have rules about eligibility, you should have those rules. Now, what's of course truly funny to me is that like that year, I remember watching the Tonys. Alan Menken wins. Also up, Frank Wildhorn for Bonnie and Clyde. He's never going to win. <laughs> um, and then two plays are <laughs> up for there because they have original songs in them: One Man, Two Governors, and Peter and the Starcatcher. So it's a lean year for original scores. Um, except that they don't nominate because they can't nominate once. Cause that had no original music in it. And then the other, the other musical that was up for best musical leap of faith based on the movie with Steve Martin uh, also had a score by Alan Menken, uh, but they didn't nominate that one. They weren't such big fans of that one. So yeah, it's just a, you know, and again, I'm not going to go into another rant about the terribleness of the Tony awards for the 2020 season. So we'll just move on from that. But I'm interested in, you, you've been a music theater fan for a long time, right? Yeah, I have, ever since I was a kid. So what is it about Newsies that made it 
the pick because when I asked you what show you wanted to talk about, you didn't have a list. You wanted to talk about Newsies. So what was it about Newsies that really that really grabbed you? Yeah, well, I I went to my sister and was like, okay, I have to pick a show. And I mean, I've, I've listened to the show for a while, so I've definitely mm. thought about this a lot. Um, <laughs> and well, one of the things for Newsies that is exciting for me is that uh, in, I feel like in one, the stage show has kind of taken on a role in pop culture that the movie hasn't, right? Like mm. for mm -hmm. at least people younger than me, the musical is the thing and it sparked a whole introduction into Broadway fandom for me that I was not aware of mm -hmm. specifically like teen fandom the ways uh, teens are interested in Broadway sure um and I also thought it was a really good cast recording and I think mm. one of the things I appreciate the podcast is the difference between like what is a good musical and what is a good cast recording mm -hmm. and I feel like this is consistent throughout it is a good Disney musical, like of Disney musicals, this is the, probably the only one that I listen to. Um, and I also just, I, I've talked about it with, it's like 10% plot, 90% choreography, and yet the show is still very good. <laughs> <laughs> Why do, what makes it a great cast album for you? Um, I mean, I mean, we'll talk about Jeremy Jordan for one. Sure. Um, I find him, his music is great, his, his voice is great, and I love listening to that. Um, and it's very much like a, a pumped up show, right? So you go from uh, the world will know, and then you go into watch what happens, then you go seize the day, and like it's it's slowly moving up the whole time. And then you have sort of the second act. You get King of New York, but then it sort of goes back down into like, yeah, you get the whole arc of the show. You get um, some really great songs that work out of context, and you have some songs that work when you listen to it all together. And I think that is really important for me in enjoying a musical of being able to have something to return to, um, but also want to listen to the entire thing at one time. So that's interesting you say that. I, I, I find, I, I think it's a very well-produced album. Don't, don't get me wrong. And, and it is, but, but it does do one thing that I, I find to be kind of annoying of more recent cast albums. And that is, it is a very long album because it, it can be. Now they do have extended tracks at the end. You can listen to the extended dance version of this and that, but the extended versions aren't that much longer than the, the non-extended version. And I've, I've talked about this at some point on the, on the show before, but I think it's in the world we'll know, which has that huge dance break in the middle. Is it correct? Where they had the actors and I, I kind of know why they do this, but but it still bugs me. Make all their dance sounds. Oh, oh, ah! Ah! Oh, oh. And it just, every time we listen to it, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and we listen to the show, not infrequently in my house. My son loves this show. My, my, my girls love this show now. And I've started watching the videos that are on YouTube of it. And um, obviously my wife loves this show. And so it, it, it is popped, you know, it's in car rides. It's in all kinds of things. And every time that comes up, I'm just like, ugh, gang. Like you couldn't have just either just play the music so I can hear it, which is part of the function of a cast album, or my preference would be going old school and just editing that whole section out and just hearing the song. But either the mid in between that they've done is just that and whole. It's yeah. Sometimes they do, they do edit out some of the dance breaks, but not mm -hmm. all of them. And to keep that one in particular, I mean, I, I do understand what the concern is there. Cause I have that problem with the legally blonde cast recording mm -hmm. where they keep the yeah. dance noises in and I don't like it there. Yeah. But there's something to it in here where it feels like the cartoonish New York boys would be doing that, and I appreciate it. It is very cartoonish. That's a funny way to put it, because it is the whole thing has a very... I mean, for, for a bunch of Americans, they're doing some wild American accents. Uh, yes. And very even more than the movie. The movie has some, like, super big Disney, like almost like uh, Disney Channel level performances from some people. Um, 
with big eyes and broad motions. And, uh, it, but the, the, during that, I think it's during that section where you hear the dialogue more than the singing and you hear these like really reachy New York accents from some of these people. It, it feels almost like a cartoon. And then if you add on to that, the sort of mustache twirliness of Pulitzer and the, though I got to say, he gets less mustache twirly to me every single day. <laughs> He seems a lot He's closer also very to reality. down from the movie one. <laughs> wow, but the movie one with Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall is is in that in the movie, in my opinion, suffering from a total lack of direction. I think Kenny Ortega didn't want to direct Robert Duvall. I don't think he knew how, and I think he just said whatever he does is probably fine. And if you let Robert Duvall go, he'll do some kind of weird hand motions and sounds like that are fine but are yes he's he's extreme in a weird way in the movie but in the musical he's very i, I don't know how to but but like that whole opening see the, the the his big um his big character song with the with the bottom line um is is a nice number but like his whole they will be learning a real life lesson in economics i couldn't offer them a better education if they were my own a week and I'll train them to be like an army that's marching to war. Proud of themselves and so grateful to me, they'll be begging to pay even more. When there's dirt on our shoes, boys, for God's sake, relax. Why throw them out? All we need is some wax. Listen well to these barbershop lessons, for they'll see you through. It's just very, it's, it's beyond tone deaf. It's, it's just this sort of like absurd point of view. But the more I experience people like that in real life, the more I go, well, maybe actually, no, that's kind of maybe what he he's might have sounded like in his office in his day. So I don't know how to come down. On yeah, I feel, like, I, I feel like as the show goes on, it gets a little better. I feel particularly the... It's not in the cast recording, but the reveal in his office where Catherine is sitting there and um, Snyder, the uh, orphan refuge guy, like mm -hmm. that scene I think is done well. The bottom line song, I'm like, okay, this is a villain song. It works. It feels super over the top, but it's also like, yeah, the historical context, you got to get in there somehow. And right. This is the way he's chosen to do it. Right. Um, but yeah, all the adults in the show feel very much like we have to have them here to fill a particular role and they're going to be a little over the top in that mm -hmm. well and since they got rid of denton as the reporter from the movie who wasn't the only other adult right good guy really in the whole in the universe of the film it is really kids versus adults and again it has that disney channel vibe to it of just like a bunch of kids up against the uh up against the adults and so is this is this like something you really you come back to a lot is newsies or are you are you off sort of on all kinds of musicals when you're listening um this is definitely the nostalgia listen particularly when my sister and i are together we put together a driving playlist newsies is always going to end up on some there um <laughs> but i'm i listen to pretty much any cast recording that someone will put in front of me i will listen to and mm. that'll be like all right this week this is what i'm doing um yeah, I would say Newsies is not necessarily representative of my other interests, but it is particularly one that I come back to. So what was your, so as a music theater fan, which obviously you are, but you, your study and, and, and focus in your career and your, and your life seems to have not been in that direction at all. Was there ever a time you considered doing theater as, a, as any aspect of it as a, as a career? Um, not as a career. I mean, I did... I did community theater as a young kid. I did theater all through middle school and high school. Um, I got to senior year of high school and by the end we were doing next to normal. And by the end of that spring, oh I was like, yes, bad choice for a high school. Wow. That is. <laughs> so I, I wanted to do history. I went into college being, I wanted to be a history professor quickly realized the research aspect isn't necessarily what I enjoy, but mm. I really loved, uh, talking to people about history and finding the different ways to do that. Um, and at the same time, I, I was learning about uh, digital humanities and digital scholarship, which is really thinking about how we use technology to uh, facilitate the work at research and um, exploration of history and humanities work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really my interest. And so I went to grad school for museum studies. Um, and now I work in the library, specifically working between the, the digital scholarship, which is talking about t- teaching people how to use these specific tools and why we should be critical of the technologies we decide to use or how to incorporate them into our work um, alongside special collections. And so I specifically work with the Judaica collections and thinking about what kind of projects can we do that help people learn about this work, learn about the collections, think about them in a historical con- context uh, and apply the technology to them. As as a, at least historian adjacent, are you able to absorb historical fiction in a fun way? Or does, is, I mean, Newsies notwithstanding is obviously something that you encountered when you were younger and, and all that, but, but do historical anachronisms and things like that get to you in a certain way in your, in your media consumption? Um, they don't necessarily get to me, but it's always, I, for example, watching the Queen's Gambit on Netflix, mm. I was like, okay, I really enjoy this. And now I want to know the history of it and get mm. into the context. Okay. Um, there's a Twitter community called Historians at the Movies, which I think is every Sunday night they pick a particular movie, um, uh, historical fiction and watch it. And so I love following those conversations and, and mm. understanding them. Um, Sometimes it will get on my nerves, but mostly I appreciate like this is a story and these are the changes they want or changes they want to make in order to tell the story. Um, So like Hamilton is a very fine line with that. There are some things that I really like that they've done. There are other things I'm like, I will let that go, but that's not great historically. (laughs) Can you, because so do I, can you give me an example of something that bothers you? Um, well, particularly the election of 1800 makes sense story-wise, but like historically it does not actually make sense and work out. Right. That is absolutely something that bothers me. Not only, I mean, the big one, because it's always funny to me when you do historical adaptations, you have to change things. You, you like history does not, if any, if history is taught us anything, it does not function as a well-crafted story. It has to be put into that mold. So you have to cut a bridge, condense. And the way you do that, I think reveals a lot about the story you're trying to tell. You have to really know the story you're trying to tell. And the, the two big changes that happened at the end of Hamilton historically, one being that Philip Hamilton died after the election of 1800 and all of that. And the other being that, you know, the, the lyric that really bothers me is you won in a landslide, because that's not true. You know, Jefferson won the election because the House of Representatives gave it to him, but it was a squeaker all the way up. Right. And then it wasn't actually that that made Burr get mad at Hamilton. It was that then Burr decided to try to become governor of New York and Hamilton blocked him again. And that's when they really got off the rails. So that last little one I mentioned is the one that bothers me the least. I really like, it doesn't really matter. We don't have to have a whole other section of the musical about him trying to get another job. That's, that's totally fine. But those other two, I don't know if, as, if it were my show, I'd be able to change those. There's, it's just a funny thing about like what you're what you're comfortable adjusting and what you're comfortable what you're not. And for me, timeline is such an important aspect of history and understanding the the, the events. I understand why he moved the 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 Philip's death to before 1800 because it seems to motivate Hamilton in his version. His son dies and he gets a a greater sense of responsibility and history, and so decides to to pick Jefferson because he understands the ramifications of that choice but you know he I don't know he, he did it without it what is, is that what is that the same thing sort of thing that bothers you about the election of 1800 or is there is there something else yeah it's primarily just it does not fit in the timeline but I, I appreciate it in that yeah the story doesn't work otherwise I mean my my thing with Hamilton I was a huge fan when it came out mm-hmm. I still really appreciated my sort of underlying uh, feeling at this point is that what Lin-Manuel Miranda was trying to accomplish is better accomplished in the mixtape than the musical. Mm. Um, I've also spent, you know, it came out when I was a senior in college and surrounded by historians. So we talked about Hamilton all the time. Um, As a public historian, we talk about Hamilton a lot. It is still a regular thing in early American circles. Mm -hmm. Um, So when it came on Disney Plus this summer, I was like, 
I'm done with this. I don't need to keep having these conversations. Um, I'm going to enjoy this as a musical theater thing and not <laughs> try to approach it as a historian. Well, that's really, see, now I envy that. If you can, if you can adjust your brain accordingly and sort of move freely between those two worlds that is an envious thing to to possess i can't do stuff like that so i appreciate that greatly this sort of critical playwright aspect of my brain just never ever 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 turns off so when i absorb any kind of media it always falls under that that broad spectrum uh which means i i end up not enjoying many things so i greatly appreciate <laughs> that ability because it and, and actually I will say it's something that happens something I've had to to grok with shows like Newsies which are not my kinds of shows the, the I find Newsies to be even the movie at the time like I liked the movie when it came out because the girls liked the movie so we're going to see Newsies and like whatever I just wanted to go out with the girls I don't care what we're saying really but it it it, I, it feels always a little saccharine to me the, the stage musical I'm speaking of mainly here and exaggerated and, and a little, like you say, cartoony. And I think that one of the, the things I've had to do when you have a kid who absolutely adores an album and is going to listen to it over and over and over and over again, and I want to foster a love of music theater in my son and in all my kids. So like, I can't pick the shows he likes, you know, he likes the shows he likes and I can play him other shows and like, thank God he likes forum. Like, okay, good. We can listen to forum too. That's good. Even though, we have to skip some songs because I want him to grow up as a well-adjusted human being, but uh, it, it, with a respectful view towards women. But it, the, you have to kind of get to to a to a zen place about it about shows like this, and I and I find the I find it to be cloying in parts. And and actually, though, for a historical question, though, I I find it to be very simplistic in its portrayal of the time period, and it's got sort of that. Dickensian Oliver poor fetishization a little bit in it that the movie has this too. I'm not, you know, but like, ain't it cool to be poor is certainly like a part of this story. Uh, and it just kind of crawls the wrong way. <laughs> I feel that me. way, especially in King of New York, like some mm -hmm. of the lyric changes they made from the movie, but you know, the things they talk about, I'm like, is that really what makes you king of New York and what you want for some of them? It feels very much like this is what a poor child would want mm -hmm. or like would expect. Um, it, it is definitely saccharine and over the top in that way. Um, from a historical perspective, I, I yeah, I'm doing that separation of like, this works in a musical world where we want to talk about like what labor what union organizing was looking like, what um, the efforts uh, efforts in journalism, like how those things work together. If that is the point of the story and where you want to get to, I am okay making those sacrifices. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, if it can ride for you and, and Jeremy Jordan, so you can't, you know, you're not going to yes. go wrong. Who I still have to say, I, I don't know if I've ever said this on the show, but I've, I've definitely said it to, to people. Had the 2012 is like the luckiest year of his life. He have to like because he did it, people. It, it is it is sometimes forgotten. He was doing newsies at Paper Mill before, and then it was in question whether it was going to go. Not if it was going to go to Broadway, but when it was going to go to Broadway. So he left and did Bonnie and Clyde. Then newsies is going to go to Broadway, and he's not going to be a part of it. Oh, that sucks. And Bonnie and Todd Clyde. <laughs> closes very quickly in time for him to then go be in Newsies. So he got to do two Broadway shows that year and he got to have his cake and eat it too. He got to go do Bonnie and Clyde, which is a show that I, I is, you know, it, it's a show that's got some pretty good moments in it. Um, it's probably the best Frank Wildhorn show. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. And, uh, but then he got to come back and do, and do Newsies. So yeah, that's a pretty great year for Jeremy Jordan. I hope he, uh, I hope he appreciates that. And he was Tony nominated for yeah, this. Yeah, because he, he does got, that. He and then there. he comes back to do Newsies in 2014. Mm -hmm. And then he goes and does Smash. Like, he just right. always has these things. And like the last five back. years, he's just, you know, he's rolling. Oh, yeah. That's the same time, too. Yep. And he was doing Waitress. He was doing, I mean, he's just, you know, he's he's a working, working guy, which is good. 
because he's very talented, I have to say. He did sort of seemingly, not, he didn't, I know, but he, he sort of felt like he came almost out of nowhere uh, with this show. Like he just sort of exploded out. And so, partially because he was doing Newsies and then Bonnie and Clyde and then Newsies. It was that great thing of like, he's suddenly everywhere, even though it's just two shows in a very short period of time, uh, which I always think is pretty, God, I've just looked at the dates. Bonnie and Clyde ran from November 4th to December 30th. Ooh, ooh, that's a short run. Ugh. Yeah, and then Newsies opened in March, and he was just, and he was there. He was ready to go. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> Very good for him. Like the world is always behind Jeremy Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably he certainly has a tremendous amount of luck in the. I would say in that in that environment. So I'm interested. In, Usually on the show, I talk to people who are performers or in, in you know involved in the in, in the arts, and I'm always interested in the perspective of somebody who is a fan uh, purely because we're all fans. But you are you are you are participating from from the house, and what I'm so interested in, especially this is a very big question, uh, but I'm going to put it on your shoulders because I think you can handle it, which is as someone who has a historical view but also a a fandom view where where do you feel like broadway is right now in the midst of everything that's that's going on does it feel like the broadway you grew up with or does it feel like something else for good or bad or does it, you know where what does it feel like to you um i feel like i feel like the broadway i grew up with was very it was very limited to like tony's mm-hmm. macy's thanksgiving day parade occasional thing that was coming through national tours mm-hmm. so um where'd you grow up I, by the way um south of boston oh okay so anything i saw was either boston or providence sure um so i feel and you know and it was anything that i came across because someone put it in front of me you know mm. so, like, like i went to go see blood brothers because someone Ooh. sent it to me like, oh my god kind of experience i'm really waiting for someone wow. to do blood brothers on the podcast oh my gosh that'd be hilarious um, oh my god yeah. <laughs> so not many. the american though you have to no do the no 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 you got to do the london production absolutely blood brothers um, good grief <laughs> I feel like the uh, coming from the question of like in terms of what's happening on Broadway or like just the conversations around Broadway. Well, I mean, I feel like since I was a kid, people and maybe probably before I was a kid, people were just like, it's over. You know, Broadway's been over for 40 years, pretty much, maybe more. And it's obviously not true. Broadway is in a constant state of flux. But it feels to me that in the last 20 years specifically, things have really, really shifted and we're getting shows that are, you know, such the, the margins get slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. We have this terrible thing with ticket prices because of the producers setting, you know, charging a billion dollars for ticket because they could. And then that became something everybody suddenly was doing. And combined with the the sort of, yin yang of tkts providing discounted tickets so people don't buy tickets at full price no matter what pretty much and it's producing a different kind of show this is what happens there's always the you know the the market shifts the landscape shifts and there will be original shows there will be interesting shows but but there it's producing a different kind of theater and i wonder if it, it as somebody who is I mean, first of all, younger than me, but second of all, not as involved in sort of the nitty gritty analysis of like what's going on every single day and who's saying what on what and blah, blah, blah. How it looks, does it look ostensibly the same to you from the outside? Because I feel like we lose perspective of it a little bit the closer you get to the inside. Um, No, I do feel like it has changed. I feel like... um. I feel like, A, musically it has changed, right? Like you're seeing mm. a lot more uh basic and paul pop musical stuff mm-hmm. um, which i'm not a huge fan of um, oh really no i mean okay. i hate dear evan hansen oh, but <laughs> so this is funny i have yet <laughs> to have a guest on this show who likes dear evan hansen 
I don't even. I would I, like to meet more of those people. I know that the people are out there who love Dear Evan Hansen, but I have had guests on who hate Dear Evan Hansen or who think Dear Evan Hansen is fine. I have never had anyone on this show who is like, I've had people on the show rave about the performers they've seen in it, but the show itself, the content, the book, music, and lyrics, I've never heard somebody come on the show and be like, no, no, it's a really good show. <laughs> Maybe everybody doesn't like first it. first act of the book is good. Um, but yeah, I think performance-wise, it is probably fine. Um, music wise i'm not here for it but yeah i'm most of the people i know from high school who were still interested in theater went to go see it multiple times and i was like i have no interest in seeing this at all well it's the so that's funny so you would even though as as a big music theater fan you don't have that kind of you don't strike me as somebody who has that emotional response in the same way that a lot of music theater fans do it, 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 because I think that one of the things about encountering Dear Evan Hansen, especially as a teenager or even in your 20s, is emotionally it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Like it's covering all the stuff that you feel sort of overtly and like right in your face and in a very emotionally accessible way. And, you know, oh, I feel lonely. I feel isolated. I feel, you know, it's all that. It's all right there. And what I don't like about it from that standpoint is it is providing a very simplistic sort of easy answer to that problem, which is like, just be yourself and everything will be fine. It's like, well, I mean, yes, but also no. And it it also like the fact that the main character suffers no consequences for his actions whatsoever is bananas, but yes, exactly. All all that aside, but so you, so you, but uh, from what you've said and and what I've seen you post on Twitter, it it seems like you have a a slightly more, an emotional response for sure, but a a much, uh, an intellectual response to it as well. And these two things, these two forces sort of work in a, in conjunction with each other. So do you look for shows that, you find intellectually stimulating more? Is that an accurate thing to say? Yeah, I would think that's an accurate thing to say. I think the shows, there are shows that I have emotional connections to, but they are largely, yeah, they're largely nostalgic things, right? Like at a particular point in my life. And so, you know, Dear Evan Hansen doesn't speak to me because it doesn't fit at this point in my life, but Merrily We Roll Along in the middle of grad school definitely did. Like that made sense. Yeah. Um, you know, Octet, when that came out as someone who's like very interested in technology and hmm. tarot, like that made sense, that connection. Um, but yeah, when I, when I go, I see a lot of theater, when I go to shows, I'm much more interested in like what the intellectual questions that it's getting at and how it's engaging me there rather than my personal connection to something. Mm-hmm. That's interesting you mentioned Octet. That has not come up a lot on the show, and I wish it would. It seems like that show got skipped. I mean, I know it won won the Drama Desk Award, I believe, over Strange Loop. It, it won a couple things, uh, but I believe the Drama Desk. Yeah, and it, it's obviously, you know, Dave Malloy, and it's very, very interesting and very well put together. Um, but it isn't a show that I hear. I, I, the, this, those little shows, the, the the sort of more, I feel like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on uh off broadway right now or there was i should say um as we're speaking on this day that the i think the flea shut down but that's a whole other thing the um but there's this other off broadway is sort of in a weird way fulfilling the promise that it was founded on 60 years ago or 70 years ago of being sort of more daring and more the original musicals and the original plays are going to off broadway and broadway is getting the jukebox musicals, the movies, the musicals based on movies, the the sort of more mainstream uh, situation with the occasional show like The Prom or something like that coming up and going, oh, that's very, very interesting what you're doing right now. Um, but Broadway doesn't seem to have an appetite for that sort of thing at the moment. This, of course, will change. Like, things change as they always do. It's in constant flux. But But there's a lot of interesting stuff going on off Broadway that I feel like is getting kind of missed by the younger... Broadway fan because it's not covered by the Broadway, you know, Twitter, Broadway, whatever. It, it, it's it's getting sort of skipped over. Yeah, I agree. I think it was interesting because I was going to ask, like, do you think that is Broadway uh, 
corporate side or is that Broadway audience side? And I do feel that way. Like I go on the Reddit Broadway for a lot and they're just so focused on what is happening actually on Broadway. And I'm like, well, if we think about Broadway as a genre and we think about like other music that is happening there, yeah, everything that's coming and happening off Broadway is so much more experimental. It's more interesting in some ways. By the time something has gotten to Broadway now, like I've heard it, I know what's happening. I have a pretty good sense of what the show is and whether or not I have an opinion on it. And that's not necessarily what I'm going to theater for. Yeah, it is that funny thing of like, because Broadway is all those things. It's a it's a district. It's a classification. You know, it's forty one theaters in New York City. It, uh, uh, but it's also like you say, it's a genre. It is a style. And but broad lately, I think this has happened mostly in the last like five to ten years. Broadway online community has become myopic into that. 41 theater grouping and a lot of i mean there's so many posts and things i see about people talking about you know their favorite theaters on broadway or their favorite things is it like and that's all great i love the i love all that kind of conversation but it's really zeroing out a whole other world of theater that's going on 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 the island of manhattan forget like all the theater that's going on around the country because that's that is what it is like you hopefully you have you come from a place that has good theater and and it will you you can see a lot of good theater but it's just there's so many other theaters in new york doing so many interesting things and that could that would i think 20 years ago have been on broadway that has been also my sort of uh growth and evolution with theater too i mean like as a high school theater kid, the only thing that you, that I was really aware of was Broadway in like mm. big B Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until like the very end of college when I started getting back into theater. Um, what I really did was I went to a fringe festival mm. for two weeks um, and I was like, oh, theater can look like a lot of different things. <laughs> and I think like, there I think part of it is there uh, a personal jump that people are making but yeah I think it is an industry jump as well and hopefully this can be a shake-up moment in that way Mm -hmm. um but I also wonder if it'll just create sort of more of a divide and like off-Broadway being more popular in that way like Broadway ends up being this not tourist thing but yeah, it ends up being almost a smaller community than what Off-Broadway can. Off-Broadway ends up being this bigger thing for a larger community and interests. Well, and I just talked about this actually with with uh, with Morgan Smith about how it also feels like Broadway, the Broadway industry is cutting off its fan base by... Yeah, I was listening to that one. Yeah, and, not, and I think Morgan was very astute in pointing out that sort of like their market is, you know, 13 to 17 year old girls. Like that's their that's their their core group. And they can't afford to go see the show without their parents. And they can't, you know, and they're not producing shows that necessarily they want to see. And I do understand that it's expensive to put on a Broadway show. And if you don't have, you know, then they've tried it. You know, they, they, they put Be More Chill on it because of this huge online thing. It did not sell very well, but it was also very disrespected by the Broadway <laughs> at large. So... It's hard to tell whether it didn't sell because I mean I have a lot of problems with Be More Chill. I do not think it's a perfect show, but it is not as bad as a lot of people reviews I read said it was, and it's also not as good as a lot of people I've heard tell me it is. So it's sort of like I, I don't know if you can have a valid critique of it at, at, without falling into one of these two political camps. And I don't want to be in the political camps. I just want to see the damn show. <laughs> Yeah, I saw, my sister and I saw Be More Chill off-Broadway, and that was the first experience that I had where I was like, oh, I am at least 10 years older than this entire audience. Wow. Or I am 10 years younger than their parents. Like, wow. it was very distinct. Oh, my. Um, but it was also, like, one of the more fun audiences I've been at because everyone mm. in that room was excited to see that show. Um, so I feel that I also saw... I didn't see Lightning Thief on Broadway, but I saw the tour of that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, similar to the way you feel about Be More Chill, of like, this was a good show for this. Mm -hmm. I totally understand why it was uh, 
trying to think of the best word, like destroyed and decimated by Broadway critics. Well, I um, would say, I would say on. wantonly disrespected. That would be my sort of like. Yes, that is a good way to describe it. Yeah. Disproportionately um, disrespected. Maybe that would be the thing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, at some point I'm like, I would rather have a theater that is like rotating of these things just to show me what else is out there if it's mm-hmm. the only way some of these things make it to Broadway. Sure. And it is the thing of like, it's not every show belongs on Broadway. Not every show yeah, is a Broadway exactly. show. Newsies is a Broadway show, like a thousand percent. It is big, audacious, bordering on saccharine, has huge dance sections though, complicated dance music that you can really have a choreographer and dancers who are worth their salt do interesting things with. It's a Broadway show. Is Be More Chill a Broadway show? Eh, maybe. It's sort of borderline to me. Octet is not a Broadway show. Um, right. It is it is designed to be what it was, which is intimate. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it's acapella for crying out loud. Like it's designed to be in that sort of tight intimacy with the audience. And in a Broadway house, it would lose, except for maybe Circle in the Square, it would lose all of its, you know, its impact. Uh, and, but again, it's a binary. It's a Broadway musical or it's not a Broadway musical. And if it's not a Broadway musical, it's, I don't know what it is. You know, like that's the general public talking right now, not me. I know what it is. It's good. As an absorber of, of musicals, of, of media in general, try to take the snobbery out of it. Do you ever feel like a snob when you see something like Percy Jackson, oh, for example? Um, I do definitely feel like a snob with some things. But I'm very much at this point in my life, I'm interested in quantity over quality. So like I want to see a pandemic focused or is that just because there's so much good stuff to see? No, that's so much. There's so much good stuff to see. I mean, with theater specifically, um, the way I started getting into it was or getting back into it was I needed designated time to myself that wasn't necessarily for other things or I needed a distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I was living in Boston for a summer. I was applying to jobs. I had just graduated. I really needed a designated space where I could, you know, sit in a room with people for two hours and watch something happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also a way of like, I want to get around the city. I want to see how many different theater companies there are. And I think that sort of, that's continued um, to me moving to Philly. And that like, no, I just want to get out and see this stuff. I want to get a sense of what the landscape looks like. I know what I like, but sometimes I want to see something that's completely different. Mm. Um, and with other media, like I don't, I don't rewatch shows. I occasionally rewatch movies, but only for the nostalgia bit. Like, no, I, I want to see what everyone's talking about. I also want to see what things like people are super excited and nobody else is talking about and like get a sense of what that looks like across. Um, I am... I'm definitely sometimes personally a snob about a thing, but I'm I'm not necessarily going to share that online unless I everyone else is also piling on it and I feel okay to do that. <laughs> so you'll kick it when it's down, is what you're saying, but you won't, you know, you won't start. Yeah, and I also think there is some like, you know, it's easy it's easy to kick down Dear Evan Hansen because it's big and like yeah, it, you're, I'm not going to necessarily do that with no amount um, of kicking is going to hurt Dear Evan Hansen. Where it, exactly, it's immune, but I won't necessarily immune. do that with like a particular show um, or theater company that I've seen around. Like I mm. didn't like this thing. I'm not always sure why I didn't like this thing or whether it's like whether it's me or whether there are problems with this. I would rather work through that myself than put that out there uh as we wind as we wind down though i do want to ask you of course as i ask everybody what is your favorite song yeah so of the new music to the show it is watch what happens um but of all of it it is the world will know that is like the ultimate pump up song for me that's good that's a good distinction i like that for a show like this i like watch what happens i think that that's a very fun addition to this to this show um especially because it comes in between the world will know and seize the day like two of the most famous songs right from newsies <laughs> i do have to say this show kind of gets as i'm looking at the song list now it kind of crumples a little bit in act two uh devolving into that thing that a lot of broadway musicals do where it's just like lots of reprises <laughs> in a yeah row. there's also a lot more scenes in act two where mm-hmm. they just sort of talk for a while which i yeah. forgot when i was re-watching the recording like Oh yeah, they there are actually scenes in here. That is a very old Broadway way of doing things, of being of just like 
not wrapping the plot up with music, but really just having like a very short second act that has a lot of scenes and a few songs and we just get us out of, wrap all this sort of thing up. Then we have a rousing finale, which this doesn't really have. This has a, <laughs> I'm always, it's always hilarious listening to this in the car when it gets to once and for all. And it's like a build up to something. And then the finale happens. You're like, well, what happened in the middle? Something happened in the middle. There should be. (laughs) Guys, come on, write the musicalize it. Musicalize the finale. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We deserve, we deserve it. Emily, you and I, we deserve it. So it says, I want to say though, before we totally wrap away as I was reading at emilyeston.com where you can go for all your Emily Eston needs. Um, uh, that you you say you're interested in digital public humanities and audi- audience content and methods rela- in, in in relation to the projects you build from technology. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what that means to you? Yeah, so um, digital public humanities is sort of the academic term for it. Um, and they're bringing together two distinct fields, right? So digital humanities is really thinking about the technologies, tools, methods that we use in order to do research. Mm -hmm. Public humanities to me is coming at this as like not necessarily the academics talking to the public, but having that as a larger conversation. Um, Those two fields have not always been in conversation with each other, but at the moment uh, it is a very important connection for me. And so what I'm interested is like, we did the web 1.0 thing where we were getting content online. We did the web 2.0 thing where we wanted people to talk to each other. I want those to be in conversation, particularly with, you know, as we think about what a digital exhibit is, as we think about what kind of information we're putting on the internet, I really wanna make sure that we are foregrounding who that is for, um, what we're putting up there and why, and what we're using to put that information up there. Cause like, you don't wanna build a website for, adults that is necessarily using like very specific elementary school language or vice versa. You don't want to build something for kids. And then like in a non-digital perspective, that makes total sense. But when you start putting things on the internet, people are like, no, this is how I would write it. Or this is what I would do. Um, I like that font. Yeah, I think is really making sure that question is exactly. I like that font. I like that design. Um, (laughs) Making sure that we're thinking about all those questions as we're building. yeah, and having that at the foreground. Yeah, that's a real, that's what I kind of got it, what thought it was for based on on your website. It ties a lot into sort of what I teach at American University, which is visual literacy and the the sort of unintended consequences of presentation in a lot of ways. Like, there's so many web. I mean, how many times have you clicked on a website or gotten an email from a relative? You know, and it's in Comic Sans, and you go, "Oh, for crying out loud!" Okay, you know, and then you have to <laughs> ignore what you're seeing in a lot of ways to get to the to the message. But that is an interesting, do you find that gap to be generational as much as anything else? Between um, understanding like what, you know, the presentation aspect of like you say, like it, this, this, web, this web presence looks one way, even though the content is meant to be another way making people understand that is that a generational problem or is it just sort of a general problem in in, in, overall that people aren't thinking about that as much yeah i think it's a i think it's a general problem i also think it is an institutional problem where Mm. an institution is like this is the information or like this seems really cool and it's like that's awesome you think it's great but we're not building this for you right Mm -hmm. like we're putting this together for a community we're putting this together for a particular audience and that audience has needs and desires and wants that the way it is constructed in your head is not necessarily communicated the same way um, and what you want to do in a digital project is help tell a story and ultimately like you got to make sure that story is getting to someone and so having those always be in conversation i think there are i mean i, I work with a lot of college students and i think there is an interest in always bringing those two together and so like helping them get to the questions that they want to get and doing it is really important um, and I think there, if you go to like instructors and professors, they're like, I want to do this. I have no idea beyond like, I have all this content. Mm-hmm. So it's a general problem for everyone. It's just the, the specifics of the problem change. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you so much, Emily. This was so much fun. It was so nice to finally meet you and talk to you about, about musicals. 
Um, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at she is historic, all one word. Um, that's the best place to find me where I share some theater stuff. Mostly lately, it's just pandemic memes, but also <laughs> technology, <laughs> academia, history, uh, anything that's kind of crossing my mind. Write what you know, so they say. All I know is I don't know what to write or the right way to write it. This is big, lady, don't screw it up. This is not some little vaudeville I'm reviewing. Poor little kids versus rich, greedy, sour pusses. Huh, it's a cinch. It could practically write itself, and let's pray it does. Because as I may have mentioned, I have no clue what I'm doing. Am I insane? This is what I've been waiting for. Well, that plus the screaming of ten angry editors. A girl? It's a girl. How the hell is that even? legal look just go and get her not only that there's a story behind the story thousands of children exploited invisible speak up take a stand and there's someone to write about it that's how things get better give life's little guy some ink and when it tries just watch what happens those kids will live and breathe right on the page and once The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at UnknownPenguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Emily Eston for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Nothing happens if you just give it.